first of all, welcome everyone from across the globe watching on the live stream. Uh, and I hope it works. If not, I do not apologize to you. Um, but if you remember that this is, uh, we, we like to be modern, so please feel free to tweet on Facebook as much as you like. Uh, tweet us with the handle uh, at underscore UK. You can use the hashtag Women in Orthodoxy. Our Facebook page is Misraki UK. Uh, please feel free to, to tweet on Facebook away um, as the evening goes on. Welcome. It's uh, brilliant to see so many of you here tonight. This is possibly one of the most challenging, most important, or possibly is the most important, most challenging issue that's facing uh, modern orthodoxy today. And uh, on behalf of various institutions, amongst them is Lachi, Okay, Midrasha, Judy Beck, Judy Beck, Women's Institute for Torah, Friends of Halakzion, and so on. We decided to gather here tonight and discuss such crucial issues that have so much to do and that are directly related to how we are going to engage Judaism over the next decade or decades. It's a great pleasure to have with us Alavda Mitzvah, the love of the city of Shoah, is the, not only the chairman of Tzohar, of which I've been a member for many years, but he's also an incredibly influential and incredibly positive rabbinic figure in Israel, and uh, a, a rav in every way. So he brings that perspective. Moshe Lichtenstein, the Moshe Shiva, of which I'm a graduate, of where I studied, where I received the majority of my Torah, and very humbly, I'm very, very grateful to have the Moshe Shiva with us. And the Rosh Shiva will give the Rosh Shiva's perspective, the leader's perspective, perspective of modern orthodoxy. And uh, in order to uh, facilitate all this and host all this, we have with us uh, the one and only Rabbi Levine, Gladys Levine, and I'm passing it over to the We're living in exciting times, blessed times. Times where women are unprecedentedly capable, knowledgeable, thirsty to be completely engaged in their Jewish life and learning to be wholly involved in their Jewish narrative. All exciting potential is accompanied by a challenge. The challenge of knowing where the parameters lie. And change is often difficult for two reasons. Firstly, whilst it's welcomed by those who champion change, lobbies for change. For other people, deviation from what they've always known is difficult. Change is difficult. Especially when it comes to our Jewish lives, where tradition is something so strong that holding on to the memories of what our parents did, our grandparents did, is something that we all cling to. The second challenge is knowing where to set the boundaries, how to apply newfound realities to our eternal value system, and the halakhic process. For this, we look to the leading voices of our generation who have steeped in Torah, yet in touch with the realities. It's therefore a great foot and privilege to be in conversation this evening with two such people, Rav Saf and Rav Moshe Lippensin. And I'd like to call upon them to both outline for us the way 
They consider women in orthodoxy in today's day and age and their vision. So, thank you very much. So now I get to find the moderator. I'm concerned myself with reading. Uh, I'm stuck in sandwich like everybody else, and I'm trying to uh, grow my way to some kind of modus uh, vivendi. And uh, I would, I'm glad to share my thoughts, but uh, they are no more than, uh, than that. Um, but I want to begin by sort of finding you. Besides the fact that this YouTube is on, and therefore I'll cross my teeth and down my eyes. Uh, I was I was told to give a brief introduction, but not that people made me focus and that therefore I should uh, try to make a short introduction. Well, I think we talk about very serious issues, issues which if people are really interested in uh, delving, getting down to the bottom of these issues, requires concentration. It requires not only talking about the hot button issues, but also really trying to get the fundamentals. And uh, therefore, uh, I will talk, uh, I, don't, I don't guarantee this is the five minutes, uh, <laughs> don't be too scared, but uh, I, uh, I do intend to uh, discuss uh, on a more conceptual and, and basic level, because I'm assuming that if anyone is going to spend two, three hours on this topic and he can't receive me instead of going to the movies, uh, he deserves... Uh, more comprehensive treatment, which just uh, requires some, uh, some elaboration. Uh, so therefore, I'll begin not by addressing uh, the latest headline in, uh, in the Jewish tabloid, but rather uh, trying to discuss in the fundamentals. And uh, I'll begin by picking up on what Marie said a moment ago. Uh, I think before we discuss any of these issues and express, and express frustration and to vent about that women haven't come along far enough or there's been too much change. So I think we have to recognize, we have to take two steps backwards and recognize what's been accomplished. My grandmother, Lech Shalom, uh, was totally frustrated because she couldn't anything. She, uh, she had tremendous aspiration and tremendous longing for learning. And uh, she was born in the, uh, 1902 in, the, in Lithuania. And she actually got married. She was never able to realize her uh, her ambitions and her accomplishments. Had she been living nowadays, I've no doubt she would have been very knowledgeable, and, uh, and she would uh, she would be quite a scholar. Uh, I think opportunities that are available nowadays are um, if you look at now, if you look at the half full cup and not half empty cup. We've come a huge amount from 30, 40, 50 years ago. I see the opportunities my daughters have. It's supposed to be what my sisters had, it's supposed to be what my mother and grandmother had, and you can clearly see uh, a perspective rising. So, indeed, people may be frustrated that maybe more has not been accomplished yet, uh, or maybe, but I think we have to indeed recognize uh, what has been accomplished. Where, now, it doesn't matter whether you want the right or the left, uh, wherever you are, you're not where you were 50, uh, 50 years ago. It's, uh, I walk into Baby Drash in Dallas or in Lindenbaum and you see a Baby Drash with, with books and, uh, and active learning. You can get the feel this Baby Drash going on. And you said, well, this would have been a dream 100 years ago and even probably 50 years ago. So let's recognize that before we uh, put this into perspective. Um, the second point is, I think we have to differentiate between individual time and historical time. In the, in the life of an individual, 40 years is huge amount of time. If I say to someone, I said, we'll send a few minutes, that things have to take an evolutionary course. 
that uh, has to be done over time. I think it's perfect sense, but the problem is the individuals are frustrated because by the individual, look, it may only happen 40 years from now. 40 years from now, they're still be frustrated because you're not going to be here 40 years from now, or certainly not 20 years from now, you won't be here. Yet, uh, from a historical perspective, it's the blink of an eye. And from the point of view of history, 40 years is nothing. So if we look at what the individual can achieve, that's one way, that's one way of measurement. If we look at what the community, how Torah evolves, and Torah has been for thousands of years, there's a whole new perspective, and if we have to take into account before we uh, become totally frustrated, uh, and if one happens young generation, it can happen in your grandchild, your granddaughter's generation, if the point of view of the system it is legitimate, even though the individual may be uh, disappointed. Uh, okay, now, uh, to get down to the, the topic itself, uh, first and foremost, it's not the original goal of women in Judaism, we have to define ourselves, what is our major goal? And I think the major goal has to be to enhance Avodat Hashem, to allow them better and deeper religious expression. That's their goal with men and their issues, that's their goal with women. In other words, what we want to do is enhance Avodat Hashem. Equality is not the goal. Equality may be a value as well. But the basic value is the value of bringing men closer to the Kaddish Baruch, man or woman to Kaddish Baruch. And by the way, you know, we have Kohani, Levi. Tomorrow, nowadays, Kahuna is not a, uh, not really an option. Tomorrow morning, it's not a Shabbat that we built. And all of a sudden, they're very frustrated. The Kohen can go inside, the Kohen can do all the work. The Rabbi refused entry, and then I, I can be able to do a fraction of the Kohen can do. Yes, you know, Judaism doesn't necessarily consider equality to be its primary value. And uh, even though I'm willing to grant equality is a value as well, but I think when we prioritize values, the main value I'm asking myself here is not how to achieve equality, it's how to achieve a woman greater avodat Hashem. Mm-hmm. And I believe that many opportunities, such as Talmud Torah and participation in, the, in various rituals, enhance avodat Hashem. But I think the overarching goal has to be defined as... So before, to create greater and more intense and another share. That's the main goal. That equality may be, or often is, what are the actors to achieve that? But the overarching goal is, I desire the intimacy in the name of Kandika Dojvaruf. Now, there are three separate categories regarding the issues of feminism and halakha. Some of them are, if you want, hard issues. Allah has a clear position, as long as you know, Torah and Orthodox and the that exist, there's no chance and no way of changing them. You know, the Allah of Gitti, Kiddushin, Mitzvah, Sashasvangrama, these are all rooted in Torah and the writer. Until Sahedin comes and Mashiach will come, they're not going to change, and there's no chance of changing them. We can learn how to maneuver within the, within the existing halakhot. But uh, those will not change. The, the other issues, which are not problematic, at least I assume the premises of Israel is working under, which in a sense, we provide opportunities, 
And those should be encouraged, and uh, we should do everything we can to put resources and spiritual energy into for women, into mitzvahs for women, uh, and the like. And the third of the we call soft issues, those in which at the moment is a particular um, position, halak or minak, or something like a certain norm at the moment, certain praxis, which uh, this lacks a halachic uh, bedrock status I mentioned before. And these are, to do, and these are uh, some of the issues which are at the moment are the more contemporary ones and the more, uh, more contentious ones. Uh, and these are the ones in which we are debating and, and deliberating and have the dilemmas regarding these issues. Uh, now, uh, regarding that, often the issues are not necessarily issues of men and women, Feminist issues at root, they are an issue of the process. Meaning, the process, like any legal system, has a certain inner logic and a certain inner rhythm to it. And this, you know, this rhythm is independent, it's not to do with the issue necessarily to women. The same logic rhythm and process which dictates the moment, say, uh, a for women or a zeal for women. It's the same which, which also deals with kidney and with many, many other issues. In other words, the process has a certain inner logic to it, which, uh, as to the form, it, uh, the same, I, I think, for instance, that there are many issues of Sparky and Ashkenazi halacha. In Israel, Hashem, we have kibbutz Galiyot. And a lot of interaction between Sparky halacha and Ashkenazi halacha, which did not exist until 78 years ago. And this is also a part of the halakhic rhythm. In other words, I often find that discussions which are presented as issues of feminist halakha really revolve around how we do the halakhic process. And uh, therefore, any real discussion of this has more to do with our positions on the halakhic process and how we view them. And here uh, I will say the following. Personally, I strongly believe the process, the properly practice, is rooted in an evolutionary trajectory. In other words, things change a lot. Things change in tefillah. Things change in minak. But they don't sort of evolutionary. The revolutionary way is the wrong way. It's a dissonance with the practice. It runs against the system. It creates what they call human peace. See that scenario. It, 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 it obstructs and blows up your uh, public system. Uh, and the, the proper way to enact change is to evolution. I could put out an evolutionary pace is a slow pace, but it's much healthier for the system. And I can put out to you, as for independent of these, I put out to you many changes in liturgy, as snail's pace maybe, but I, over my lifetime, if you remember the Mahzori, well, in England it's a little different, I guess, but if you remember the Mahzori that I grew up in, in the USA, in Israel, with all the pipes, small letters, uh, which when I really when I was a child, no one said those people did. It's just they probably still do, but um we get at least the same so it's a non-free community. But they were still published small letters because the hundred years ago they were said. Nowadays, if you take the current Mahzor, they've been already relegated to the back of the book. Uh, they no longer are ready inside the the actual text. If you take I think you have to say one of the real mushroom they already been put it out of the they've been totally removed. In other words, things change. I was a child in Israel, Mario Cohen only said first eleven stanzas because that was that was the minimum. 
when is catching to and uh, <laughs> so now it's now it's say twenty these, these are trivial examples they illustrate that there are this evolution process halakhically at work I'll, I'll give a two examples from all these issues when I got married and uh, this is one witness here who can attest to that uh, the first uh, the first took is after I got married my in-laws invited us for the first day of Tov and as a matter of course, the men were told to sit on the part of the table under the sack, and the women relegated to the point under the ceiling, which was not uncommon at the time. I think if tomorrow morning I would invite my daughter to Sukkot, that I want her to sit under the ceiling, she would take her vest over, which I buy her, and she'll stop me with it. <laughs> and uh, I, I think years I've seen anyone. I've probably 25 years since I've seen Sukkot, which men are under the ceiling, and that's men to stop under the ceiling. Rather, the child is common. This, of course, is economic drama here as well. Your homes, your Sukkot, but also there's a religious survey. I remember when I was in Boston in 1979, so a certain, uh, a certain rough came to the town of Shabbos, and the rough uh, took me over and said, whisper in my ear, you see this Remison? She's famous throughout America. She's the only woman in all of America who brings the taboo that has to the show. And it was true at the time. I, I, I don't say her name, but I, uh, it, it was actually true. She was the only person that would be in the show. When I first, uh, when I got married, I would buy one for myself and give it to, to my wife and to my daughters. Uh, I now buy five and I have three daughters and I buy now five sets every year. One for my wife and uh, one for my daughters. Uh, I won't shoot, I think, in the first day, you so there's about 80 to 100 women who come with the Dalit Minim, and Cholamoy have 15 girls who show up with uh, the Dalit Minim. Now, so that was, these are called evolutionary changes. You have any headlines, you have any controversies. I've never invited to a panel about women saying the Sukkah. I've never invited to a panel to the woman here, Shofa. Because of other things, but they once had any words. And they've now become, uh, so I think your main things are changing and will continue to change. The problem is the issue is what people want at the moment immediate change and they demand that you're done immediately. Now, of course, you said to me, well, how does evolutionary change happen? <coughs> it happens. I, I don't want to waste too much time. And, and, but there are formulas and these things do happen. And uh, I, I, I assume now, I'd rather have another point. If you go to the crystal ball and say to me, Twenty years from now, Ashkenazi will keep us. Twenty years from now, because of the interaction Ashkenazi had with Sardi Halafa, so all kinds of the minhagim of change. And by the way, I think this will happen because you can see the dynamic uh, on the ground. And if you say to me, "Well, in my crystal ball, I can tell you exactly what the minhag will be twenty years from now, or what it was twenty years ago." I think it's totally irrelevant to Hashem tomorrow morning. If you can say to me, 20 years from now, people will keep us in the past, I'll say, you're the So they're lucky. But tomorrow morning, it's irrelevant. Hayom la sotah, v'lo machar la sotah, v'lo etmo. You live in the present. Now, I'll explain this, it's a crucial point. This is, I think, a crucial point. Mitzvot are not question of absolute truth. It's not a question simply, is this right or wrong? In theology or philosophy, it's either math, it's right or it's wrong. If you come to me 
with a crystal ball that math will write to put in the geometry of proofs. 20 years from now, I'll accept them tomorrow morning and say, Baruch Hashem, I was able to be ahead of my time. But halal mitzvot are not true, um, not only true, they have a relationship to man and God. Kibitzvot is a relationship to Amisal Kadosh Relationships exist in the present. If you come at the age of 24 and say to me, you'll be 64, you, you, you'll do things differently, I'll say, fine, I'll be 65, I'll act like a 64 year old. From 24, I'm going to be acting like a 24 year old. A relationship is, it's true, is at that particular point in time. And if I'm yourself this world, I'm tough, she and I involved at this point in time, that's where we should be. Mila, the only basis for Mila is based upon this. Contemporary practice is part of the relationship. And you have a future practice or past practice, doesn't count. So the one who can come and say to me, look, in the, you know, the 12th century, things were done differently, that's fine. The 12th century is legitimate. The 20th century, the 21st century, it's not. You say the 25th century like that, then also doesn't matter. So we have to try and continue to work in an evolutionary process from within. But I do not think, I'm convinced, that what, that you cannot speed up time. And you cannot, uh, like if I, if I say Ashkenazi, Sparky, Halacha, refused in 100 years from now, so wonderful for that generation, for me at the moment it's irrelevant. And therefore, I think the same is true as well. Now, how do you identify what is a good evolutionary change, what is a revolutionary change? Part of it, I think, is motivation. What's the motivation? How do we assess do I want to accept change or not? Part of the motivation. Part of it, how much is it organically an extension of the contemporary process? How much is it an attempt to overhaul the system? Now, you can notice this partially it's under the radar. That's one of the very identifying characteristics. There are maybe other characters as well. But I strongly believe that we should certainly do as much as possible to provide opportunities to enhance the left Hashem. And to buy a woman with this religious expression, it's a crucial halachic value which should be utilized. But I really think the decision should grow in a matter manner when we begin to ask ourselves about various issues, this should be the guiding line. Encouraging change which can answer like Hashem, doing in a way that seems organically and develops in a Muslim fashion and not an attempt to overthrow or overhaul the system in a radical fashion. So, what well to everyone? The truth is that uh, I could sign almost on every word that Professor uh, Sam was talking, was saying. But then I was afraid in the beginning that it would be, it would be boring tonight. Some of you were real, on everything. And then, thank God, how much you said some comments that I want to <laughs> remark and say us from being bored just of real about everything which... Well, first of all, the matter, I think that how much you said what to the years and, and uh, put it on the table. But uh, I want to be here in... Uh, I want to take uh, the position of the advocate of the devil, and to raise some issues that uh, 
will make the statements that Rabbi Hassan has made a bit more question. It's true that uh, there are fundamental issues that uh, could not be changed. These are the questions that many of our youngsters raise to us and actually throw them in front of our faces and ask us, how could the Torah say such a thing? How could the Torah decide that the man has the ability to give the gags and we do not, we the women have to suffer from those husbands who refuse to give the gags and the Torah has given that authority to that woman. So this woman tried to find solutions for that, different kind of solutions that will be within the system, will be within the boundaries, but yet will try to take from those husbands that are utilizing that authority in bad manners, that will try to take from them this authority, such as the law that, for instance, will be Mafkia the Kiddushin under certain circumstances. That's one example. The definition of revolution versus evolution, which is very simple, I mean, again, completely agree, but it's not accurate when you see the revolution that Rabbi Yashem has done to the family life. I mean, to decide one day that a man could not get married to two wives, or to decide against the very fundamental rule of the Mara, that a woman could be divorced, coerced to be divorced without a will, and to say, no, it doesn't exist anymore, it's not an evolution. This is a revolution that requires from a very big rabbi to take responsibility and to say it's impossible to continue this way. By the way, I just want to mention a, a, a story that happened, unfortunately, two, almost two years ago. There was a big debate, and it still exists, the debate about, about women saying, resigning courage. And almost two years ago, when Mrs. Rachel Frankel had lost her son in that terrible event of the three kids that were kidnapped from Gush and afterwards were murdered by those uh, terrorists. And she recited Kaddish in front of all the rabbis that were present in the uh, funeral of uh, their kids. And since then, the story is over. There is no woman in Israel that would want to say Kaddish and anybody will dare to stop her from doing that. And it's only because of one, one woman, one hero woman, that took decision and they took responsibility, and I don't want to use the word took the advantage, but you know someone in, in, in a good way of saying the word took the advantage, and decided that since she wants to recite Kaddish, and she said that Kaddish, and since then the, the, that discussion is over. By the way, what Rav Moshe, and, I, and again, I fully agree with what he said, defines as evolution, others will define as a reform revolution, which means that it's very relative, the ways you define what you, what, what you define as evolution, for instance, 
what uh, your sister uh, Esther is doing in Midgard Oz, which is a wonderful work, and you define it as a kind of evolution. I remember your father, Lala uh, Shalom, blessed his memory, uh, when I asked him, I think 30 years ago, about uh, studies of women. And he said to me, I remember the words he was using. I have, I have no interest to teach my daughter, to teach her Sotachoshen. And you know what? I think she has no interest in that also. That's the way, that's the, these are the words he used. My daughter learns today in Midalos, and the rabbi that is teaching there keeps on teaching them Avrimi Louis and Sotachoshen. So I asked myself, what would Rabbi Nisman said 30 years ago and in compared, how would we consider this? Evolution or revolution? So I guess, if you ask this question, Rav Steinman or Rav Eliashim, you would consider this as a complete revolution. I guess Rav Nisman, the father and his son, are encouraging this phenomenon. So, um, so, so I guess it's very hard to uh, define what is considered revolution and evolution. What, what concerns us is even more is even more than that. I was a few years ago in a convention that was done, it was the 50th anniversary or the encyclopedic anniversary or maybe the 40th anniversary, I don't remember the uh, exact anniversary. And uh, I was invited to talk about our health and, uh, and his policy, and his way of studies, and his way of asking. And, uh, you know, Rav Herzog wrote a series of six books. And again, it has to do with women, but as Rav Herzog said earlier, it's just an example, because the issue is much broader than the woman. And the issue was, how should uh, the state of Israel, when, she, when it was established, how should we refer to the question of Yerusha, of daughters? As you know, according to the halakha, when a family, when someone passes away, his sons inherit him, and the daughters are excluded from the Yerusha. Now you can imagine that someone left an apartment or a a big account in the, in the bank, and he has five daughters and one son. And uh, he will take all the money, and they will be left with nothing. Now, I'm not dealing now with the practical question how to deal with this. First of all, it raises a moral question. And, I, and again, I agree with what Rav Lichtenstein said, that the essence of our existence is not equality, but to be engaged to Abodat Hashem, to be committed to Abodat Hashem. But because that's the essence of our lives, I guess that many of our daughters, many of our sisters, I don't have sisters, but I have daughters, four, and I guess they raise a question. How, how could the Torah write such a, such a law that excludes the daughters from Yerushalayim? Now, what did the rabbis do throughout generations? It's not that they ignored the need of Yerusha, of, of the daughters. So there was the idea of Shtar Chatzizachar. That was a kind of a combination that the father gave a loan, a fake loan, 
to the daughters. And he said to the children, look, if you don't give them, if you don't, you don't give the daughters the, a part of the Yerusha, so then I owe them such and such sums of money. So Rahelson realized all these issues, and he said, let's make a Takana, let's make a regulation that all daughters will be able to to get equal parts in the Yerusha, which, is, which sounds quite fair. And the Chazanish went nuts against against the brothers, and he struggled against them. He said, "It's a reform. It's a revolution. It's it's, it's anti alafa It's anti all or what we stand for." And he didn't agree. And eventually, legally, he won. Ravelson's initiative was cancelled. Practically, I don't know one family, not a Dati, not a Haredi. I don't know one family in Israel that the daughters give up and they don't receive a part in the Yerusha. I never heard about such a family. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Herzog is quoting Shaiyanon that describes how in Poland there was once a family that didn't, that the sons didn't want to give a part of the Yerusha to the, to the sisters. And he describes this as a kind of Rasha. And the, all the people were screaming, were astonished because of that story that there were, that there was some, one family that didn't agree to uh, give uh, the part for the, for the sisters. But that's not, the practical mission is not the the, the the girls will get along and they, they will get the money they want to get. The problem is, that we want the Torah to inspire us. We want the Torah to be a source of enlightenment. We want the Torah to be something that our children will look up and will say, wow, this is what, this is the source for inspiration. This is the source for, to teach us, to be enlightened, us to enlighten all the, all the human beings in, all the Gentiles in this world. Does this inspire us? Or does this push us away from Torah? So I think that when we deal with these issues, it's not enough only to focus on the question, what is the right way to evolve? Is it, is it done by revolution or evolution? But to look at the right for women to vote, and that is struggle so much against giving women the right to vote. I couldn't understand. And when I see the reasons, the reasons, forget modesty. I understand what modesty is about. I think it's one of the struggles that we have to struggle to strengthen our, our, our education in modesty issues. But when it says he's afraid of shallow bite, if the woman will have the right to vote, it means that, God forbid, the man will vote for one party and the woman will vote for another party. So this could create the collapse of the family. And I, and I read it. And I, and I can read it. And that's my rabbi. I want you to know. That's my rabbi. And I admire my rabbi. And the, the vast majority of the Torah that I learn and that I teach is that is the Torah of my rabbi. And when I read this, it's, it's, for, it's for me, it's one of expression, something that it, it's very hard for me to understand. And if that's what happens to me, you 
could imagine what happens to the youngsters that have no commitment to no to nobody, and especially not to a fuk and not to anybody else. <coughs> and the last thing, the last comment that I wanted to make, and it's the first one uh, she was talking about, and that's the statement that I made that event of that I have a feeling that many times we are terrified and that by the biggest by the biggest obstacle for orthodoxy to develop in the right way, to evolve in the right way. <coughs> Again, I fully agree with what Ramosh was saying about that. I really feel that in many occasions we are terrified by the very scary word reform. Whenever I say something which is based on Shulchanan, which is based on Ramah, take for example, Ramah has mentioned the issue of Zimun. I dare to say that most of the people here are not aware of the fact that Shulchanan says that women are allowed to make a Zimun. If they are, if they sit separately, and they are commanded to participate the simon if it's done by the men. It's only that they are not allowed to make the simon with the men with the men's presence. But once they sit in the table with men, that not like my daughters that when they want to go to Kiva Friday night, they say, Okay, we make we make Birkat Amazon and we go, wait a minute, you have to be a part of the simon. It's true that you are not allowed to run the sin, but you have to be there. That's not a high shulchanah. And then when Mishikura tries to explain, why am I not happy with that? Well, okay, you know, women and women. But when I said that, that woman has to be part of that, well, that's reform. And when I said that women had to, to take place in the truth school, because they have loans, just like others, it sounds reform. And when they say that women are Rosh Hashanah to be a part of Adamat Darim, because it, if if you if you adopt that minah or Adamat Darim, there's no difference between women and men. It's not reform. A mat are reform on us. We are so terrified that everything that we say sounds like reform just because it's not following the habit that somebody else is, is doing. By the way, going back to the Kaddish, I saw just a few days ago a Chuba of Ramosha Feinstein saying that the minute in Russia, in Lithuania, was that women said inside the Kaddish. But when you say today this, these words, it's not reform. But that's what Ramosha Feinstein said about the minute in previous generations. But today, everything that doesn't fit to the habit of some communities or some politicians Yes, all of a sudden, we can't reform. So, again, I completely agree with the foundations that Robertson uh, has drawn in front of us. And yet, we have to be careful using the terminology of evolution and revolution to know where to use it to understand that the main essence of our existence is connection with Hashem, Avodat Hashem, but to realize that we have to look after inspirational explanations. 
how to deal with the challenges and with the questions that this generation is raising to us and is not ready to accept an answer. This is reform, this is revolution, revolutionary, that's too much revolutionary. They deserve to get from us answers and sincere answers to the, to the challenges that they put in front of us.
straight away this that album. Well, first of all, I want to say something about the meaning for me. What does it mean for me to be around? The Chazonish, for me, is considered to be one of the biggest scholars in the last generation. One of the biggest scholars. He was never authorized to be a rab. Nobody appointed him to be a rab. As a matter of fact, whoever learned, like me, Merkaz Aram, and he wanted to get some words written by Ratz Yudah, what he had to do was only to do one thing. He had to put his seal in front of Ratz Yudah. And the last page of the seal, there was a nusach of Shurumotum Asrot, that the Chazanish is written. And Ratz Yudah would add to every seal that he just saw. Well, the Chazanish was a Balebat. And you do not you do not use a nusach of Balebat. And when people are thinking, was a Balebat. was one of the greatest rabbis in the Western version. So we had, you know how many, how many big rabbis, big Balebatim were in Vilna in those times? And it's not to mention a whole list of rabbis that we call the rabbis, but actually they did not serve as rabbis. What does it mean to be a rabbi? If you are knowledgeable, and you know to answer the question. So what does it mean? Does it make a difference if you got an authorization by the chief rabbinate or by somebody else? I mean, when I got married, and keep on saying that, when I got married, uh, since I learned with Kazarab, and that in those times it was almost forbidden to learn Al-Akha. Uh, in Kazarab, you, you had to learn only Mara, to concentrate in Mara. So when I got married, my wife knew by heart, and I did not include Shmirat Shabbat. So whatever was done in our house was done according to my wife's answers, not to my answers. So what does it mean? She was the rabbi? She was the rabbi. She knew the answer, and I didn't know the answer. So if the woman knows to say what is mutar and what is forbidden, so she will give the answer. If she, if she doesn't know the answer, so even if it's a man, will be better off if you would not answer. So it doesn't make a difference if it's a man or woman. If he knows the if he knows the answer, then he give the answer. If he doesn't know the answer, then he not give the answer. So if the question is, Allahically speaking, that the woman could say an answer, there is a long list of women that were scholars in previous generations. The Sakharachinuch mentioned this. And the Sma's wife, and the Sma's mother, and there's a long list of rabbis that their mothers, wives, or daughters were big scholars and gave shurim and, and, and passing the alachot. That's not the issue. To be honest with you, when it comes to issues of modesty, I always wondered how, how is it normal? That a woman would come to the rabbi, that is a man, to ask him intimate questions, and this fit, this has to fit to modest norms. For me, it sounds very strange. For me, as a rabbi, I felt very strange that my daughters, when they went to Ulpenot, they had to discuss personal questions with men that were rabbis. Why should they? Does that fit to our modest norms, to the Allahic norms? 
So if there are women that could answer and could respond to these questions, to these to, to this challenges, why shouldn't they be there? Just because in previous generation they did not know the stuff and they didn't know what to answer. So why? I see no reason why women, women would not be involved. As a matter of fact, when Nishmat started the programs of Yohatzot Al-Aham, again, in the beginning, it sounded to some rabbis as revolutionary. Today, I think in our world, uh, it's, it makes sense for so many women that I guess many of us ask ourselves, Almost like, uh, how did we get along without the ways? How did we get along without the Yatsot al <laughs> 10 years ago or 20 years ago? How could we still, I mean, it, it makes sense that women would ask these kind of questions to women. So the spiritual leaders that we are uh, in general of in uh, Otora, dealing with allowing women, encouraging women, to know, to answer questions, in other areas, such as Yilchot Avilut, such as Yilchot Shabbat, such as other issues, that if they know the answer, and they will be well trained, they will be able to, to respond to women that ask them this, uh, this kind of questions. But, yet, I want to emphasize, and I'm against the Maharats, the program in New York, and I'll explain why. Not because women are not capable enough to learn and to answer questions, questions. If, they, if they will study, if, a woman, if women could be doctors and could be lawyers and could be psychologists, there's no reason why they won't be able to have the knowledge to answer Allahic questions. But when we come to deal with the structure of the shul, where the place of Abodat Hashem is based upon separation, and it should be based upon separation between men and women, in the place, in the, in the structure of the Knesset, of the, of the Senate, the Shul. Over there, where the rabbi is playing a very important role in the men's section, because that's where the dabbing is taking place, that's where Kriyat the Torah, that's where the Chalim, that's, that's where the main part of Shul is, 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 well. It's not modest, it's not proper, and it's not I, I think it should not be done that a woman from the woman's section will start to run the that's, that's not proper. That's not proper. And that's against the, our tradition of the way shul should look. And therefore, despite the fact that I want to encourage women to be involved in shul's life, and despite the fact that I want them to be able to respond to questions that they are asked, and I hope that more and more women will be asked more and more questions. Yet, I believe that sure will remain in the way it should be allowed working. And therefore, women could not be. And of course, in order, many are meant to have a strong female spiritual leadership, we need to have looks before them at growing a community where our girls, our teenagers, our young ladies are knowledgeable and spiritually sensitive. Where well, unfortunately your grandfather of Soloveitchik was one of the lone voices in the mid-20th century together with the Bunch Rebbe about uh, girls and women studying Talmud. When he started the Maimonides school, 
Talmud was in the curriculum, which at that time was unique. Um, and I know that your, your father, uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein, had even, when he wrote about women studying Talmud, had taken, had also put in a personal note there that that's how he had taught his girls to have lessons in Talmud, um, and that's what his wife had also grown up with, and of course your sister, as has been mentioned, Esti Rosenberg, trying to flagship Miguel Oz, Midrashah, Institute of Women's Learning. What would be your recommendations in terms of how we can create and nurture a community of, a learning community of women who appreciate the halakhic system, who are spiritually sensitive, who have a feeling of who speak and, and live the values of Torah. How can we nurture that here in our community? Okay, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll just be a good Israeli politician and uh, you have the microphone to respond to some of the previous observations. <laughs> Before I answer this, because this is a softball question, some hardball before, which I, uh, <laughs> I like this first. Uh, I. Um, I go back to the, the opening bars, never a soft spot for uh, theory. Uh, I must say, I'm quite perplexed by uh, sort of stuff in the beginning. Uh, namely, if we think there's a problem with the get or with the Yushin Abad, or with, with manual material inheritance, that problem is a controlled problem. And uh, I understand the original problem with Judaism is going to solve that. Which I, I have a problem with various other prohibitions. I, mean, I have a problem with, uh, for instance, a colony in Prussia. I may have a problem, I may not understand, we have a need to solve. But, but if the problem is that the young generation is questioning that, there's, I mean, the, the basic question, there's a whole discussion, which is how to explain it to that generation. These are, we have heard so many takanats, it's not change the problem. The problem remains, God said that men give Yerusha and women don't. So either we say that his values dictate to us our value system, and then we engage in educational, pedagogical um, method to explain why we understand, or we start to, or we start to wrap up educational, we don't understand that we learn to look at questions. Uh, or if, if we want to question the controversial based upon a value system, I don't see how Takano can solve that problem. Because the Takana will just say that we've changed and we've suspended around the system. But the system remains, I can, I can, I can understand as often and say that Ben Sura and Mora was never in the practice. But the value state remains. George Kabel Sahara, the value system of Rishabad is there. I, I, I can go about them. There are many statements here which are difficult for me to summon. Particularly because I have only daughters and not sons. Uh, but uh, I think we, I don't see how there's anything we can do at the moment. The hardcore issues, such as male versus that men you get, I don't see how you can possibly solve that problem. And unless you want to come and say that the cannot won't solve the, the philosophical problem over there. So if we come and say it's practical, I agree 100% with what was said. There is never, in the, at the moment, every single Haredi daughter uh, gets her share of Yerusha, and we saw that problem. 
The first example changed the system. By the way, that's my memory. He himself uh, decided at the end that it was impossible. He deliberates, he agonizes. It's very moving and touching to read around the pages how he goes back and forth. But then he would do as a suggestion because he says it's simply against the system. And I, I don't know if we can have a whole evening about what we don't understand. But that I think is not, I, I don't stand this evening as suggesting that issue because we have this why the Torah believe in homosexuality. And whatever I'm going to say, at the end of the day, the Torah said this. And if the only generation doesn't like it, so I said before, we can resort to various educational methods. But this is what the Torah is saying, and saying this about Shabbat, and saying this about. So uh, I think the soft issues we can. Um, <laughs> the soft issues we can uh, simply describe how we, how we want them to evolve. But the harder issues, uh, the value statements, they're there. And uh, I simply understand there was. I can understand the validity of admitting that the interpretation is a problem with that. I mean, like the writers say, maybe it's better not to ask questions you can't answer. Maybe it's better to ask those questions. But um, I just don't think that uh, the practical solutions, I'm a thousand percent for every possible uh, trick in the book to, to enable, you know, to enable... Uh, Solve the problem of women who are uh, who refuse beauty, and uh, to solve the problems in Yerusha. But come and say that the issue is not the practical solution. The issue is the value system. So I don't see how we're going to. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not, not going to roll the button on Shabbos. It's his uh, sovereignty. He, uh, he dictated his uh, his values. Uh, so therefore, uh, I. Uh, I said that secondly, I uh suffered a few examples for quote unquote revolutions. Uh I uh I think there's a bit of a it's uh, I think it's a bit of a romantic presentation of the day. Meaning a Tobin Gershom was all black, and then came the white knight, made it all white. I first of all, to the best of my impression, it was a process and the beginning of the Gershom, it was simmering, pre-Rabbin Gershom. As a matter of fact, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not a personal historian, but I occasionally, I do read some history occasionally. Rabbin Gershom was not the, the only recorded known that kind of Rabbin Gershom was not this one. This is, it's, this is known from the 15th century, but not from a Rabbin Gershom per se. And the meaning is this evolved. I think it was a more religious process. Uh, and um, I would certainly say about the Kaddish for women. First of all, I think it's a beautiful example of a revolutionary movement. It was not done out of any desire to make a statement or out of any desire to make a, to overhaul the system. It was spontaneous and intuitive and a tragic situation. And that's kind of a kind of evolution. When someone does something naturally because he feels the time, because he feels emotionally inspired for that. And secondly, I also think, as Gemara says, Yesh Kamel Mobishachat. A person can, uh, basically, he can make his, uh, you know, he make his life worthwhile in one hour. I had in high school said, that's true, but the big question is, how many sleepless hours you spend before that one hour? And I don't think this kind of came in a vacuum. It came, after similar processes which were, uh, which have been ongoing for 20, 30, 40 years, and, uh, I indeed believe that these issues, Kaddish, Simon, uh, 
participation to the seed board. These are exactly prime examples of where the direction we're headed in. I hope with an evolutionary uh, fashion, and, and when they're done, not a sentence, simply done, that they're, they're evolving out of their situation. That's uh, what I view uh, there was the, the, the cumulative effect is revolutionary. If you look at it, it was 100 years ago, but it is evolution, but it's revolution which is achieved on an evolutionary time scale and through evolutionary mindset. And that's what I, uh, is what I call it, at least, uh, evolution. And the final part, and I'll answer your, uh, your last question. <laughs> I, 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 I'm for a during my time. I tell my daughter every, I wish my daughter was a during every, every year. What I think is a mistake is to give a clap on the human show and, uh, tell the woman to rush to do. Rather, I think it's a, I don't think it's a tragedy to do that, but I do think that, um, you know, when you simply advise enough women learn to learn and they come and consult and they ask, so over time you create critical mass from, uh, from below rather than, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, going and embarking a campaign for zero for women or for, uh, for just a dime for women. Rather, women are knowledgeable, ask the questions, we'll give them the answers, and this will, I, I think, uh, from below, it will be done, I mean, I admit this is a very, it's a more mundane and less romantic perspective of things, but I, uh, I just think it's more effective. Uh, we got to tell the Torah. I certainly think that, uh, I think huge, uh, huge advances, uh, we continue to, I continue to make them, uh, it's certainly true that, uh, the opportunities that the stop stars have are better than those 20, 30 years ago, and, uh, I'm, I'm relatively satisfied with the fact that programs are open for the world for learning. I think where we have to go is, first of all, take it out to high school level. I think the process will happen when you begin teaching tomorrow at high level post-high school. Eventually, go down to the, to the high school level and then filter down to the lower levels. I certainly believe that's uh, something we should desire and we should hope that will, uh, that will happen. And I... Uh, I think it's a process that will be happening, and someone's a good job area to go into. It's uh, women teaching tomorrow. I think it's a very good place to get to the job training because there'll be plenty of openings uh, in, in that field. Uh, I think the real problem, I would also certainly add, this is not tomorrow per se, but I certainly think we should do much more in the school, in the school system in general. To feel for girls, the moment I feel that the field for girls is not really as serious as, as the field for boys is. This is sort of 20 years ago, but when my oldest daughter was in sixth grade, so I spoke to one of the teachers in the local school, and she was in a different school, I asked them, how many, what percent of the kids that have a male every day? She said, there's something like 60%, 40%, I forget the exact number. And I said, that's very nice. So he said, to, and I said to them, oh, because I'm asking, because my, I want to put my daughter, they don't tell me to die. I says, Oh, girls, no, zero percent. I'm talking about men. Uh, so, yeah, I think we should do a lot. Because I think schools, tefillah should be amazing. The school should not assume uh, any difference. Uh, however, I would like to make two, two points regarding this. Number one is, I think it's important <coughs> to recognize that there may never be certain differences. We went to the Kodra Beta Kodra, Chazal assumed that there are two differences. When I was young and uh, a bit naive, I guess, I was assumed that, you know, that the boys and girls are the same things. Maybe boys are stronger and basketball. But, uh, 
they run straight in without no differences. Now, as I got older and married and had daughters, that means realized, of course, that you know, some of them are some from Venus, and uh, the men, boys and girls, have different psychology, different, different needs. Uh, now, it's not a blanket uh, assertion, but I'm like, yes, I think there certainly are differences. And we do that, you take a look at, I taught 12th grade in Cleveland, Ohio, for two years. And the school had what they called the Baked Midrash Program. In which it was key, it was like supposedly high level advanced, uh, advanced group. So I taught the boys, advanced Gemara, and someone else was teaching the girls, uh, advanced uh, Gemara as well. He was, he was not correct, but they were both teaching against the bar. And this is the USA, it certainly has to be equal. So the school, the Mechitza, the school show, it was, the Mechitza was straight down the middle, even though it was very awkward geometrically and architecturally, but as long as we made stay, everything was equal. And so was what the learning. So one day I went to the principal, I said that, listen, you, uh, you want your advanced, your baby drash of boys to be a bavua de bavua. Reflection of a reflection, uh, a mirror image, or a mirror reflection, maybe, of a yeshiva. So you teach an advanced Gemara. What you should really want is, if you're a girl's part, not to be a bavua de bavua of a yeshiva, but of a midrashah. A midrashah will teach more Tanakh and less Gemara. So maybe ask the girls, maybe they want more Tanakh, less Gemara. So we agreed to survey the girls. So two-thirds indeed prefer Tanakh. A third preferred Gemara. It wasn't a big group, but the sample of six girls. And so I made a deal. I said to them, listen, the four, the four girls, we'll switch to the Tanakh track and recognize that even though we can say equality, this is what they want. When I said they wanted Tanakh, the two girls who wanted Gemara, so I took them into my shear and uh, I, uh, I had them sit in a separate table. I made them take it. Oh, never to tell anybody. So here, without and we integrated them, and they uh, they did very well. One of them is a, is a very good Jewish engineer. Helen came an engineer afterwards, which is about to around. And one of them is again an educator, and uh, I just thought we should be dogmatic in trying to impose a uh, one-size-fits-all model. Uh, I think it remains true. And I think we just show we should do whatever is best, offer those who want full-time Gemara, but recognize uh, that maybe one-size-fits-all, we should try to set the position model on everybody. And this brings me to the second point. The girls... Um, the problem. The problem has nothing to do with girls and boys. It has to do with something else. In contemporary religious Zionist society, it's what they call Mashver Gemara. problem is, people are, uh, value Gemara per se of learning from a Kama is not self-evident. In a sense, it never was. It was always done, but never self-evident. Hasidus challenged it. The Lithuanian ro- world rose to the challenge, created both the philosophical manifest of Shachayim and its continuations, and created an educational model to answer the Hasidic challenge. And basically, they basically add, 
it created an educational model, the philosophical um, and underpinning, in which you explain why learning Gemara is a crucial, is a crucial thing. To what degree, people have questions once more. Now, with boys, that's a tradition. Institutions are molded in certain tradition. They maintain certain tradition. And boys expect to learn Gemara. Girls, not only do they have a different mindset, but they also don't have this institutional tradition. So you start from scratch, if I was to start from scratch with boys, no institutional tradition, and no Masara, and if their fathers and grandmas about the yeshiva, they also, some of them would have a problem, why in the world do you devise such a curriculum? And with girls, that we, are, we don't have a tradition, and therefore many of them, uh, in a sense, sometimes my, my sister is really dealing with two opposing currents. There's one group, it's just like the two girls and the center four girls. One group has much more Gemara, and much advanced Gemara, and and Rashba, and we try to give it to them. And I think we should, and we should encourage this. The other group doesn't even understand why the little Gemara they get, they should be getting, because we must say Tanakh and Mashaba. So it's challenged, some of to build institution. So the boys' institution at the moment is tradition, which is a, it's an inertia which allows us to continue, which becomes more problematic uh, for women. So I think we should certainly emphasize and explain the points of Gemara, recognize that this is a challenge which exists. And now maybe let's uh, bring our discussions about ritual. Um, over the last couple of years, here in England, partnership with Nanda have grown quite considerably, both in the number of them and also the attendance. Um, a lot of people feel that there they are finding a fulfillment in religious expression, they feel truly included. Or a you don't endorse partnership with Nanda, um, as was our chief rabbi, also doesn't, and, and many other possibly, but if that's the case, then how would you suggest that women can find an access point, an active place within ritual? I don't know where to start from. Should I respond to the question? I will leave the debate between me and Moise to. To Israel, and we'll in Israel, and maybe I'll refer to this in the end of this evening. I want to share with you the, um, my experience with the partnership in Yemen. And first of all, uh, in my city, in Shoham, there is such a meaning. And uh, the uh, people that established that meaning are graduates of the Kushetzim. And uh, when they came over to me, I said to them, so I said to them, look, I go to Robert's Center. And they were led by Shin. Are you saying that Shin? To Pat? To Pat. Okay, so I went to Robert's Center, the father, and I said to look, this and this, they want to make partnership. And what do you tell them? First of all, what do you think about it? And um, I think it wasn't really that uh, helpful. I said, 
very clearly that uh, he's opposing that and he doesn't like the idea. So I, I insisted, is it forbidden or you don't like it? And it's not the same thing. And he said, he used the, the verb en wachamin nochamizim. Which is a kind of something in the middle. I mean, he couldn't point out something which is forbidden, but to say that uh, our tradition doesn't like it. Uh, and uh, there was a whole storm in my community about this. And um, I announced that I'm going to give a shiur about that topic on Shabbos morning. And we announced it a few days in advance. And when this, uh, when this uh, took place, Rabbi uh, has the privilege, of Moshe has the privilege to say whatever he wants in his yeshiva, was probably, no already will follow what he's saying. But when I have an exceptional event in my city, all the media went after to see what's going on there in Sean. So we announced that there is going to be sure about that. And um, I think the crowd was more than Shabbat Agadol and Shabbat Shabbat <laughs> together. Everybody arrived to that uh, to that uh, shiur to see what's going to happen there, what knives are going to to be used in that uh, shiur. <laughs> and Friday night, I prepared Friday the, the paper sources dealing with different aspects. But Friday night, I spoke with my wife and my children. And uh, we asked ourselves, uh, what should be the right way to, uh, to deal with that topic in public? And um, they said you must find something that will take, will, will blow the air from the balloon that uh, is threatening to, uh, to blow up and to divide the community and to, uh, and to create a new kind of machloket and division by it. So I said to them, you know what, I have an idea. That's, before I begin my show, I want to, uh, I want to sing with my caravans together, a song. And we started, uh, and, I, and I said to my children, I will sing the song of uh, Adarab, a very famous uh, song that was based on the words of Rabbi Demelech Nishatz, Ten Bilibenu, Shenireko Lechad, Ba'arat Chavirenu, and they said, well, these are Israelis. They, they won't like that idea. You have to go to talk. You have to fight. You have to struggle. And I said, okay, let's try. What could happen? And uh, that's the way the shield began. And I started to sing that. And everybody uh, participated with me. And the rest of the shield is What I'm trying to to tell about that question is, first of all, that without going into the details, and I have a lot of uh, statements to make regarding the why am I posing the partnership in Yanni, but yet, I don't believe that when we deal with these issues, we should use all the energy that generally should be used against our biggest enemies 
And that's something that we're talking about people that want to worship Hashem, that want to be engaged, that want to feel engaged. And they have, I don't agree to the way they want to do that. And it's on the border, it's on the lines, and maybe it crosses the lines from some, depends on which way they, they run it. But, uh, and, and we have to, uh, to deal with that challenge in a way that will not kick them out of orthodoxy, will guarantee that it will be a part of us, despite the fact that I disagree with, uh, with certain behaviors that uh, they run in pursuit. Because the Bush has mentioned before the idea of, he's not sure about what will happen about with the kidney in 20 years from now. I don't know what will happen in 20 years. I can tell you what happens today already. Uh, I dare to say that in our society, the modern society in Israel, I don't know what happens in England, I dare to say that between 10, 20 to 30 percent of the modern Orthodox in Israel don't keep Ashkenaz. And I guess from your face I feel that you're not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess it's also a problem, but yeah, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I mean, there are worse history which are horrible. Then kidney also, it depends the way we will, will maneuver, maneuver that challenge of publishing. Now to refer directly to the question. I think it has to begin with the fact that, as Moshe has mentioned before, girls have to be educated to die, to pray. It's not normal that when I arrived to Shoham, I learned that Talmud Torah for boys is taking place twice or three times a week, and for girls it took place only once a week. This has to be changed. Girls have to be educated just as boys, not because of equality, equality but because they have to be educated to to be of Hashem. So they have to learn how to die, they have to learn how to make brachot, and brachot lefanea, and brachot leachavea, and they have to be treated just as boys. And then they will have to be, they will have to come to shul, and they will have to, to dive in shul, and to be, to be, uh, to, to be aware of the fact that Tfilah B'Zibur is something that is important not only for boys and Kaddish and Kedushah, it's important for girls as well. And then I, I believe that time will, time will come, and then we will ask, we'll raise questions. What part could we take in shul in order to express our our connection to Hashem. And then we will have to see what could fit to the structure of, of Shul or what does not fit. And the Masorah that I received from one of my rabbis, we are saying, we will enable everything until it touches the structure of Shul. And I want to explain what is for If there is a woman that could give a shear, I will not prevent her from giving a shear. Not during davening. Not in the middle of the davening. Davening is finished, and she wants to give it to our Torah, she will give it to our Torah. Not because she's a woman, she's a woman, but because she's a scholar, because she has something to sell, she has something, she has a message to convey, and, she, and many of us, the adult rabbis, we learn our Torah from Nechama Lebovich, and nobody said it's, it's forbidden. So if we learn to learn from Muhammad Lebovich, there's no reason why we're not able to learn to learn from other rabbis, if they could teach us and could tell us, uh, could, uh, could uh, share with us 
their ideas of Torah that there are they, they are they are clones. So if something will change the structure of the shul, I will, I will be against it because there is a structure of shul that is given to us by the Masora since the existence of Beit Hamikdash that is mentioned in the Gemara that Takanat Dolati Knusha to separate the women and men in the, in the time of Sukkot and since then it was adopted to other uh, to, to all shuls and as long as the woman involved in shul will not change the structure of the shul I will be in favor of it I will encourage it as a matter of fact we invited Blessed Shavuot uh, an amazing woman to be sure in the Tikkun Shavuot in the middle of the night and uh, Hashem, she shared with us a lot of wonderful ideas and everybody uh, was pleased by them when it comes not to be a chazan and not to have any other Torah and not to do anything that will change our custom of what the face of Torah will, the face of the Shul will look like. And I happen to learn that I, I want to share with you an anecdote. I gave a shield a few weeks ago, Shoham, after the Naftali Bennett visited Solomon Chapter's school in New York, was criticized by the Jew Ravenant for visiting the conservative high school there. So, uh, I was asked to give a shoot about our approach to uh, conservative strings. And, uh, so I discussed the issue of rights. I'm sure the, the big debate that took place in, uh, in the States in the 40s, maybe in the 50s. And then the decision of the conservative rabbis to allow uh, non-observant people to come on Shabbat, officially to allow them to come to drive and come on Shabbat to uh, to the synagogues. So I said that this was one of the big points that divided us within the communities. And then someone came up to me and raised his finger and said, look, I want to share with you the rabbi's story. I lived in one of the towns in the United States, uh, next door to my house, there was a conservative synagogue. The Orthodox synagogue was eight miles from my house. So I called the rabbi, the Orthodox rabbi, before Shabbat, and asked him, uh, what should I do? I have a conservative synagogue next door to my house. And an Orthodox uh, synagogue, eight miles, and the Orthodox rabbi told me, Drive your car and Shabbos to my synagogue, to the Orthodox synagogue, and don't dare to put your foot in the conservative synagogue, which is next door. Um, and you say that the split has begun when they allowed, and when they said that it's possible to drive your car on Shabbos in order to come to Shabbos. I'm just sharing with you my experience. What I'm trying, what I'm trying to, to, and I agree. I guess the right recommendation would be that he shouldn't go not to the conservative and shouldn't drive his car. Uh, at least that's what I know from my grandfather that uh, he said that someone asked him about uh, a racial farm. Yeah, but I think he's going to get the chairs on the official evening. We'll not fix it. 
what I'm trying to bring out is the following. We have to look for elements that will be able to involve more and more women in Torah studies, in Philam. We are in favor of reading the Mikilat Esther, and again, by the way, it's an example of something that for many rabbis was considered to be revolution in Israel when it started 20, 25 years ago, and today we have hundreds of shuls that have the Megillah laying for women uh, at Purim, at night and in the morning. Anything that will change the structure of shul will oppose anything that will increase connection and engagement of women to shul and to the community will be blessed. I said to the Jewish person, I'm proud of being to have presentation. Uh, uh, I just said the following. I think we should, we should certainly emphasize Davin and the like. Uh, I think also, more broadly speaking, Mitzvah the Seisha is not grandma. There's no problem with Mitzvah. I mentioned, for example, Lula and there. There are many voluntary Mitzvah which uh, traditionally girls were not encouraged or exempt from. I think there's a whole area there which is not problematic and which can uh, be utilized. Uh, now, I know this doesn't solve the problem of public participation, but if you're asking about, about that issue, I won't, since the question assumes a premise, I won't open that to discussion. But rather, if we're assuming that you, uh, where can you stand, I certainly think this is, in general, to put it more broadly, we should certainly emphasize, uh, and there was trying to motivate, you know, more intensive motivation for the, the, the plan which are underutilized. Uh, and, uh, I simply think that girls are very motivated, want more, and then they get areas which should say run up against that position which are stopped by excess before. But I think for the avenues, for many girls, there's still a lot, there's still upside which hasn't been utilized and should, uh, and it should be done. Secondly, it's problematic for men to speak about this because we don't always feel the exclusion. In other words, I can come in a moment and say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter, but then again, I'm sure you know that rightfully so, who say, well, you don't, you're not excluded and you can't make such a statement, then I agree. So there's a certain inherent, uh, Problem, uh, by having to line up, I guess, and, um, and, and therefore it's, um, but I will, so having made that, and I certainly recognize that's a, it's quite dramatic, I, I will though, uh, add one point. At least, the people have alluded to my, uh, lineage, uh, the Rebecca spoke about the lonely man of faith. And in, in his, uh, perspective, the essential movement of faith, the essential, we call the faith gesture, is the individual. If it's man, it's man and God alone. And that's the essential movement. So I agree that public participation, it was I said, so do I often, if I get an aliyah or from a chazan, is it meaningful? Yes. I still not deny that. I still recognize that the moment denying that woman Creates a problem, and the reason, you know, it basically blocks opportunity, which people could, which one could certainly have experienced. Nevertheless, I myself, one of my deepest moments of that Hashem, one of the moments I experienced with the most directly and most immediate, they're almost always private moments. They are moments, not necessarily show, they could be 
It could be on a rooftop uh, in the desert in the army. It could be in some place in nature. It could be in a hospital. Uh, it could be in many different places. But the essential movement, that was essence, is really the individual, the Kodesh Baruch Hu, meaning and community. And that is open. Uh, so this public participation has value, and there's something which is still being denied. But I do think it's secondary to the basic phase gesture. That's just says up at the beginning. If we talk about mutual equality, so it's a, it's a huge problem. If we talk about that Hashem, and uh, so there is a problem, but it's but it's not like you know, when nothing is available. I think the essence really is still there. And uh, that uh, now I also understand. I agree with everything we said before about the end of the life. I don't rule out that in some future point things will change. In other words, I saw an evolutionary process before. I don't rule out the event at some future point in time. At the moment, I really believe this is a revolution which should not be at the moment should not be done. But uh, looking into looking period to the future, I have no way of telling what the time uh, what the time span is or whatever. I don't rule out that these things may at some future point in time uh, undergo this kind of evolutionary process in which uh, and everything will be changed. Now, as I said in my other remarks, individuals in this room, there may be little comfort because our lives, our individual lives, will have uh, a shorter span. If ask about what does the system have to offer, what direction is going, I don't rule out that in future generations the things will be different. And I think times we do ask, if, he, if I was sent to war, and basically the Israeli army said, we are willing to risk your life, and tragedy often happens, and people are, are killed in action, we are willing to risk life of the individual for the better benefit of the collective. So I think we also tell the individual here, we are, even though we're postponing your fulfillment, and maybe postponing it to a generation, sacrificing your fulfillment, for the good of the system, but I believe that the, if we devote the Torah to be slowed, so our basically religious gesture is accepting the system, even if it's falling. I'll give you a simple example. When you blow show from Rosh Hashanah, it's a tremendous religious experience. You know, the Ramadan, everybody describes it. When Rosh Hashanah and Shabbos, we abstain. Now, it really is a big prize. You know, I did this. this there's a famous story about Rabbi Shai 100 years ago. He went to the base of the Bull Shofar because he couldn't not be Shofar Shashana. And I stood there again. And again, the Gemara says that Kol Shadash will maybe in the maybe in the sofa. If you don't, it's, it's plain words. If you don't blow in the year, you have Tsars at the end of the year. And nevertheless, like we have saying, we feel our individual religious experience should be spawned for the better, for the broader benefit of preserving Shabbos throughout the generations. So once every three, four years, we move on a chauffeur and the experience because we want the system to be preserved properly. So sometimes, yes, we pay these prices, uh, and, uh, We're keen to open up questions. I'm sure that there are many questions. Before we do, I've just got one final question, which is something that living here in London. Um, I think about a lot. I think it's um, something that's come out of the conversation as we've been speaking about. We're talking about the evolution of the process 
and we spoke about compassion and sometimes looking for, for a need to change. And at the same time, one can sometimes jeopardize unity. And here in London, every community has strengths and weaknesses. And one of the things that I think we're quite blessed with here is a certain unity that within our schools, and there's a diversity that many different sectors of the community sit side by side. And within the rabbinate, um, there's a diversity. And there is a unity across the community um, from more secular to modern orthodox to the more Haredi elements. And when we talk about the evolution or the more revolutionary aspects, at what point do we say it's more important to champion a certain change? Because that's what's necessary for the future of Judaism. And at what point do we say we're going to hold back on that because we actually risk dividing our community? And I think that's something you've both uh, been involved in, both rough of your work in Sahar, which has built such incredible bridges in Israel. And also Rav Lichtenstein, just one example, um, that I know reading through your Teshuvah about it back in 2013, following um, the issue of when soldiers had left the army ceremony. And um, with, with women singing, there was a response that you wrote. Um, I'm not sure whether it was particularly really triggered by the event and, and a need to re-examine the halakha, or whether it was the timing, but again, that need to, to build the bridges and have unity, and that can sometimes work further in change, and sometimes maybe it's a question of holding back change. So I wonder if in your closing comments, before we take questions, you could perhaps just comment on that. Well, it's a question of balance. I think the question is certainly a very relevant question. It's a question of balancing two conflicting values. And whenever you balance conflicting values, there's no formula. The formula is you take into account both needs. Application is different. There's no way I can tell you one size fits all solutions. You're good for London and New York and Los Angeles and Yushalayim and Haifa and, and, and the like. You're recognizing and the different values over here, and it's going to be dealing throughout the evening, that unity is one value, allowing participation is another value. You have to prioritize, it depends. If you, if, is the price, um, are you preventing small opportunity, or very basic opportunity? Will the damage done to unity be slight damage, or will both the community? Your application will always have to be, um, have to be local, and there's no way to give a precise formula. You see, we take into account uh, needs. I'll, uh, I'll just find like the following story. Ryan Soloveitchik said something about that. was uh, once interviewed by a reporter who tried to egg him on to attack other factions. So Ryan told the following story. Ryan Brisker was once, he received a letter Nakhbalevi Lifshitz. Nakhbalevi Lifshitz was Mr. private secretary, and apparently some of the Kanoi, and uh, he tried to convince Rebchayim to cooperate against the Zionists. So Rebchayim read the letter, folded it up, put it in his pocket, and someone said to him, well, what's it all about? He told him what the letter said, no, do you plan saying yes or no? So Rebchayim said, of course not. He said, why not? You're both opposed to the Zionists. So Chen said to him, I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you a, mash- a parable. Both the housewife 
and the cat take mats. There's one difference. The housewife, the housewife prefers there should be mice, there should be problems. The cat wants there should be mice so she can chase them. And he says, he is a cat. I'm a housewife. <laughs> and this is a barnacle that reported them. Meaning, at times, you have no choice to take positions which may cause problems in unity. We should always examine ourselves and always ask, are we taking the position despite the damage that will be done to unity? No, we feel the times that still be counted, even though you know you pay a price incredibly, or you can't. Do you enjoy the fighting? Do you enjoy clawing and scratching the other side? Do we, do we, do we, do we enjoy that or not? We should always ask ourselves um, that question. We can answer that we sincerely desire no machloket and no, uh, no, and there shouldn't be problems. But what can you do? At times, certain values override others. At times, you need to override At times, uh, long opportunities. So, uh, so be it. I would much, uh, I think we always have to ask ourselves how much we are looking, enjoying controversy, controversy, I guess, uh, and how much we, uh, how much we do not. And I think we should always ask ourselves that question. I think that, uh, first of all, again, I completely agree with what uh, Moshe said. I wanted to add, uh, one component to that uh, to that question. In many occasions, we feel that uh, because we want to preserve our unity, we hide our positions, we hide our beliefs, and usually, usually, it will serve. I want to call it names, but it will serve those that, for them. It's considered to be a regular war. And in most of these uh, cases, those who are struggling for something which is important for them, that they could say it's a regular war for them, they will always uh, lose their battle. They will always lose their case. By the way, what happens, for instance, in many occasions in Israel, that you see that all of a sudden, many could be by rabbis, it could be by politicians. They used to say that everybody in Israel is afraid from Fege in Meshorin. Who is Fege in Meshorin? Well, I look to the right and I see to my right somebody, and he looks to his right and sees somebody. Eventually, it ends up by one of the rabbis in Meshorin that is afraid of his wife, that her name is Fege. And he's afraid of her, and that's how everybody is affected by uh, this failure from Ashore. We used to say about Clinton that Clinton is influenced by one of the Merkaz members of the Likud, because everybody again looks to the right, and it's, it could be Netanyahu, it could be someone else that is afraid of someone that is that is sending uh, uh, to, to to his right. So it's true that the value of unity is important. And I think that whenever we deal with such a problem, we should look after solutions that will not divide communities. For instance, if there is an issue of Sefer Torah during Sefer Torah. I mean, 
people could say, let's make a vote, and let's decide that you did this way or another. And then a part of the community will feel offended, will, will feel excluded. And you could find other solutions that will, will bring that, for instance, that's a door, a good place that it will not cause it, that will, it will not cause to a division inside the community, it will take place somewhere else. Now, if people look after solutions, they will find the solution that will be able to preserve unity in one end and to allow each one of the parties to express their beliefs and their wishes. Whenever someone tries to take over and to destroy the legitimacy of the other side, that's a place where using the word unity is not Unity does not mean that the majority or those who are noisy or those who maintain to be more something will have the ability to destroy the others. That doesn't mean unity. That means that someone wants to dictate his position or his beliefs and to take control and to utilize the word unity in order to delegitimize the others. That's one, that's one uh, uh, short uh, comment. The second comment that I want to say, we all are aware of very famous Midrash. Midrash says, Chavor la'atzabim, Ephraim, Anachim. Whenever you see the Jewish people that are united, even if they are united around Atzabim, Atzabim is island, even if they are, they are united, about ideas that you are not falling in love with. You are, you are, not, you are not in favor of these ideas. The idea of creating unity among communities, among us, in various occasions, even though we have to pay price for that from time to time, it's valuable. And we have to take this in consideration. I agree, but I just think that it's true that you need to be legitimized. But however, if you have to be responsible adult in the room, on the other side, then you're responsible, so you become responsible adult. And uh, if you pay some price, so be it. I think being responsible adult is a value, respected of what the other side is doing. Um, I before you answer the question, I just want to say, like I said uh, a while ago, I do feel uncomfortable at the end of the day. Here we have two men discussing issues which uh, are uh, which really you know relate to the fulfillment uh, of the other sex, and something maybe uncomfortable. So I can say I certainly think that we should do the best possible to provide as many opportunities as possible, and to provide the best possible religious experience uh, to both men and, and women, and that we should. Uh, so it puts a favor. We are, you know, recognize both of the, the problem and, and, and also I feel full sympathy and empathy to provide without uh, Hashem as much as possible. Well, I think we've, uh, we've had a lot. Um, even just to take away that uh, even in their Sharon, the backstop to say the woman. But also, just as we've come from Parashat Yitro, the excitement about Antara, we go on next week to Mishmatim and to it uh, coming into our, our everyday, the laws of our everyday life, that 
some of the ideas that we've taken, that, that we've, we've discussed and we've heard about tonight, specifically what Ron Rosh has just spoken about now, is actually growing. Um, we need to, as a community, really, think about how to continue the fantastic work that's being done in our schools, in our youth movements, um, with our young people, the opportunities for women and learning as we have at the Midrashad, the Youth Back Institute um, for Women's Thorough Studies, um, and how we can grow those, that we can actually really nurture a community of learners, spiritually sensitive women to increase um, the wonderful community that we have now. <coughs> we'll take some questions. We are um, confined with time, so we'll take um, a couple of sets of questions. We'll start with um, we'll start with a bit of set of probably about three questions, and, and then we'll open up for answers. Hi, thank you. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, uh, each of you, with the uh, UK community, um, <clears throat> but I would like to say that some of the experiences that you have gone through, certainly in Eritrea and in the States probably over the last 20 to 30 years, have not necessarily been replicated here. Uh, some would um, call it more Dickensian, possibly medieval. Um, I don't know. You specifically spoke about Sukkot. And just as a personal experience, I'll say two personal experience, and then I will ask a question. Um, my daughter shook, uh, she's now 17, about four years ago, shook the love in uh, our shul in Edgeware, uh, and was asked why she was doing that. Um, she would reply because it took us, but I'm not very sensual two weeks ago. Um, in that very special, about two weeks ago, uh, there was a session about women and Talmud Torah, and uh, the Rav in that shul said that women will not be asked by a Kodesh about their Torah learning. Um, and uh, in this very shul, actually, there is a Gemara shul, which is held for women. And the wonderful Rabbi Kimpel, who encourages that shul, uh, still <clears throat> had to, uh, to some extent, not be able to call that shiur a women's gemara shiur. So I just want to locate where we're at. Mm -hmm. And with that, I want to ask a question. Uh, you said you were uncomfortable, Rob Moshe, a little bit about, to some extent, uh, being representative or, or talking about these issues uh, when you yourself are obviously uh, not female. Um, you also mentioned this idea that uh, Rob Stubbs talked about this sort of practical type of not that has taken place, but nevertheless the philosophical difficulties are still emerge from the Torah itself. The question I want to ask is, is there not, however, a divine gift or a divine value system that we, the human beings, are those people who take that Torah and we make it, we change it, we pass in uh, what has to be. And if that's the case, that is also a value, uh, a divine value. Uh, and it is also true that thus far women have been excluded from that divine value. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Emphasize the importance of education for women. So, the 
parts of education is not just, I mean, you can say it's for its own sake, but if it's for its own sake and you can't apply it to your lives and what you do, then it's little fun. You have to be able to apply it. So in 20 years' time, if what you're saying, when you encourage women to learn, and they do learn, what's the situation going to be for women in 20 years' time if they aren't able to put into practice what they've been learning? Just, uh, we're going to take six questions now in one full set, uh, just because in the interest of time, so if anyone has any questions to, to that side of the board, we'll come back here. Very famous book that was published 
and they ended up outside Judaism. It could be, I would refer to the Karais or to Reform or to other movements that could be that started with goodwill, but ended up outside the boundaries and outside the Jewish, the Jewish continuity. That's what it is. So I think what will happen to, to what we are discussing today, which is 30 years later, that from that speech that I've given in SCC, is, uh, is that about the same thing? And I, I, I'm happy to say it's so far we see a lot of achievements, but it doesn't mean that we achieve it. Now I want to refer to the second question that if we educate so many women, so many girls to do so, so many things, but what will happen with them in 20 years? Well, this is another prophet to tell you what will happen in 20 years, but I, can, I would, I think that I could say one thing for what happens today that I believe that will develop in different ways in the future. The question has mentioned something which I don't know if so many people, if, how, how many people paid attention to that. You know, there is a big demand of moral studies. I mean, one of the symbols of the revolution with the women's studies is the moral studies. Now, what Ramosh has hinted to was that, well, it's a wonderful revolution for the women. They're just like, I mean, most of the men don't like to learn the morals. So, does it pay for us to invest so much time and manpower in teaching and encouraging and educating girls to like morale when it's uh, not in fashion by the boys anymore. So, the answer, and, and I would refer to the same, in the same way to the question of dominant. When, look, and I'm saying this without, uh, without passion, but I think that's the truth. You know, when, when I read the book that taught us the principle of separation, between men and women, I believe that to be in better mitash, to be passionate about the possibility to worship Hashem with such strong joints and happiness, and to see the Kohen Gadol, and to see Simchat Betashreva, and all the events that are described in such an amazing way by our sages, and to compare this to our daily dominant, well, I don't see any disaster that might happen between men and women in today's dominant because they don't see any passion in our dominant. And therefore, I could easily say, well, I mean, what's the difference between uh, sitting here in a Korean environment and sitting in Shona? It's not that people are so passionate in show, but that we, I guess, we look forward to a time that's coming to show something that will be so, that will lead us to such a high level, will uplift us to such a, a connection to Hashem that will be better off than myself. Today speaking, it's how to foresee, it's how to foresee how this will, will happen now. I believe the part of the education for women to die and to, to be a part of the Torah studies, to be a part of davening, will bring them to different ways to worship Hashem in ways that do not exist today, in our way of 
of our shunan in the structure of the current shunan. So it could be that there will be a better answer for, for another question. It could be that we will encourage more Megillah learning in Purim. And maybe Shilot Nashim on Friday night that they could sing by themselves and they don't have to worry whether the rabbi will say that the voice of the woman is too high and they have to, to lower the voice. And they will be able to, to pray and to worship with their character, with their behavior. And not to copy, not to follow what's going on in Shul, because it's not always something so inspirational that they have to be so enthusiastic about it, and they have to copy. And as uh, Rona Cohen said to Moshe Rabbeinu when he wanted to bring his children to, bring his children to, to Egypt, he said to him, Allah, you shall not are we're so sorry about the first ones that arrived to Egypt, I'm not sure that you want to bring that next one. I'm not sure that the model so damning for my daughters is to come to my shoe to see how it looks like. Maybe I prefer them to their place, to, to, to daven as they daven in Migdalos or in Lindenbaum. And you know that today there are tens, if not hundreds of men that come to see how the Slichot Daven is taking place in Migdalos and Lindenbaum. And they are jealous of the way they are daven there. So I'm not sure that the way to educate women and it will not frustrate them the fact that they could not participate and attend in our governing. Could be that there were adopted new models of governing within, 100% within the borders of Allah, without challenging any Allah question regarding Kedusha or Kaddish or whatever. And doing, doing it their way, in a way that will be not less inspirational than our own. I want to refer to, uh, to the question about uh, the Ma'ah, you are right that the rabbi is not a canton, although today I saw that the rabbi was a canton as well. He was a canton of today's shahs. Um, but I think that the role that the rabbi is playing in Dhamani is much more than because of whether it's a chazan or not. The way the current Shilah looks is that the rabbi is a part of the tefillah. He's the one that they wait for. He's the one that corrects the husband. He's the one that, that, that says if something was done in a proper way, not appropriate. The main, the main role of the rabbi that is in shul is to be in the place where the dhamma is taken. He's the one that will correct about Korah. He's the one that is in charge of the, to run the, to run the services. In the I'm not saying that the woman could not be a pastor to be a part of the pastoral team of the show. I'm not saying that she could not be there. But to be the one on the topics during the dialogue, to be the one that will run it, the services, I, I don't think that's the thing to, to do. And now, the last comment, I promise that I will refer to something that said. But when we see a Takana and we believe it doesn't matter if it's from Rabbiosom or it's from Rabbiosom, and by the way, if you see Takana today, or the, every Takana is a part of a process that took place. But yet, one day someone has established a Shtar One day someone has made a Takana that is started to be written in Shuhana Ruch or in Ramah elsewhere, saying, from now on, there are no more um, uh, 
the fact that the guards even will be sure of it, and then she's willing to give such an answer, and to her, I think it's really signs from the progress which even in the traditional UK is, uh, is being achieved, and uh, I suspect that 34 years now she'll tell that story to her children, grandchildren, with a smile. Uh, <laughs> so I think there's room for optimism, never, uh, nevertheless. Uh, we got a more basic question. I accept the premise that there's human input into the threshold, and the drashot reflect the interaction between the darshan or the chacham who is engaged in the drashot and the text. So as soon as you receive an input, but nevertheless, there's a tension between the drashah and the text. And it's not plastic in a way that can be uh, taken anywhere and everywhere. There's a certain point at which it cracks or breaks, and... Um, that's why, A, I think, you know, that the reason, at some point you reach the limit, beyond you can't be go. Secondly, the fact that these drashot were codified and accepted, so the point makes them uh, normative, and we, we can't, for reasons that I can explain now, we can't always go back and undo them. The classic example is the vote. The Chazal defined the trefot 2,000 years ago, even though medical knowledge has shifted, but the codification at the time is binding. And so, uh, if I think we are, we are against the certain wall, and, uh, we have, we are limited in our ability to do that, even despite the fact of, of the threshold. Uh, you know, the question of learning, I didn't, I didn't have any premise of the question. I really think it's value for learning in and of itself. I've, I've spent the past year studying about Kalahot of Kohanim in Truma, I'm not a Kohen, I will never eat Truma, and nevertheless, uh, I deal with that. I studied Kiddush, even though I have no plans of getting married again. Uh, so I, I, I just said, basically, I know it's the premise. I do agree that it enhances it. But uh, I, I believe that even if things will not change, the fact that women will capture the area of Talmud Torah, and Chazal saw that as the primary area. Kineri Mitzvah the Torah Or. Torah is... Um, Torah is basically compared to light and the mystical candle. And the light is much greater than a candle. So if we're able to give women Talmud Torah, even if there's no specific practice, I think we've conquered a major, uh, major step forward. As I believe I said before, and this is my main, main point, there's still a lot of room there for Mitzvah, which at the moment is uncharted territory, and which many, I think, prefer this much opportunity still uh, working out there. Um, going to get into some Europe, it, uh, at the moment, uh, I agree with what was said before that, uh, you know, we should leave Tfilah and Shul ceremonies alone, and therefore, as long as I'm in Sinirot, it's part of the Tfilah, it's not, uh, so then the Kiddush room afterwards, so, uh, I don't think we'll gain much also by getting into Sinirot and preventing everything else. So therefore, I think it's better to adopt the same policy that at the moment that we do not, you know, we don't offer, and it's good, so we don't offer it to the shots and the like. Uh, regarding women laying for women, that's part of the partnership issue, and uh, since, the, since the evening it was based on the premise of the chief rabbi as opposed to that, we're not open for discussion, so whatever, whatever is true there, I think is true here as well, and... Uh, we have, however, the partnership will eventually uh, you know, evolve or play out. This will be part of that same issue, and uh, I wouldn't isolate it from the broader question of that. Um, 
but revolution, evolution. Uh, I, I can't define exactly, and I think at times maybe it's, maybe you really can't. Uh, I was brought up basically the things are not either either or. The processes off, often are muddled in real time; they overlap. Uh, I can't tell you exactly what point you cross the boundary from evolution to evolution or vice versa. And uh, I agree with you that there's some personalities which are 80-20 or 20-80 and uh, I just didn't compare Martin Luther King because I think we're talking about a legal system and, 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 and ritual and politics is a different sphere and uh, what's good in politics is not always good in ritual and, and, and vice versa. And I think there's a part of Churchill who said and if he did say it's clearly an observation was pretty self-evident, the qualities needed for a wartime leader are not those for a peacetime leader, the qualities for a peacetime leader are not those for a wartime leader. So what's good in one area is not necessarily good in the other area. And um, I, uh, beyond that, I, I wouldn't talk about individual uh, you know, intuition or individual examples, but I think we just have to stick at that, that we can sometimes identify it, and uh, even though we can't give an exact formulation, regarding equality, um, I agree, as I said before, I agree that uh, the problem is a legal problem. I also, though, uh, I also agree, as I said before, um, despite the fact that some people are denied, I, I do believe, I think it's true in other areas also. Let's assume there's inequality in physics, or inequality... It was, it was where it was hundred years ago. And let's assume, and, and I will say, you know, Cook's Hood, when he wrote the truth about women voting, there was no suffrage in the United States either. And it was, that truth has to be viewed in historical context. Uh, suffrage for women was not, uh, not only lacking Judaism, and, uh, as, as, I said, I don't want to give the benefit of the doubt that in 1916 he would not be writing like he wrote in 1916, 1920, whatever it was that he wrote, uh, and, um, I nevertheless, I think if uh, if a person was in physics or in literature or in uh, psychology hundred years ago, so yes, he's, she was denied opportunities, but the essence is nevertheless the, the discipline itself. The essence is the truth of science, and not necessarily how you compare it to others. So you have to, I mean, the essence of the religious gesture is first and foremost. Uh, Independent of whether you're equal to men or not, and I so far I think the primary religious gesture remains that of the individual and the soul. And uh, I think Emuna uh, and the Amiyakai relationship uh, is played out independent of the, of the issue of equality. I admit, and I have no solution at the moment, that uh, things are not always equal. I so far it's not possible between priests and the Kohanim and the Levites and between Jews and Goyim, and like, the Judaism is not based on inequality, I guess that's what you, I think Midrashim, I give, give a long speech on, you have different parts of Midrashim, some do express equality, some are less, but uh, at the moment, I agree that the, there is an obstacle, but I also think that we should focus upon ways to nevertheless uh, find self-realization, despite that. Tremendous sights to all the hosts and uh, co-sponsors of Phoenix and Ava, that's really important conversation to happen. It's taken, I think, many Shabbat, uh, Shabbat conversations from our table to actually hear. Um, I think there's a lot of food for thought. So, tremendous thanks to our staff and our Moshe.
And also I'd say a personal thanks as well. And to Laurie. <laughs> Thank you. 